0: Focus our thoughts on the end of verse 10 particularly. After Jesus asks them, why do you trouble the woman? He goes on to say that she has done a good work for me. Though of course, in turning again to this passage, we are returning again to the village of Bethany, which you remember is just outside Jerusalem, a couple of miles just over the Mount of Olives. And uh, the feast of the Passover is imminent. In fact, at this point, it's just a couple of days away. And so the village, like the city itself, just swells far larger than usual in its size. And amongst the regular visits to Bethany, uh, the regular visitors, I should say, to Bethany, is the Lord Jesus Christ who um, very early on identifies the home of Mary, Martha and Lazarus as the home where he lodges whenever he is in Jerusalem at the festival and uh, just as the village is honoured to have the Lord in it so the villagers themselves decide to honour the Lord and they prepare this feast mm-hmm. for him and it's prepared In the house of Simon the leper, obviously Simon, who was formerly a a leper, but now has been cleansed, healed by the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we saw last Lord's Day, although the feast is in his house, the spotlight once again falls on these three siblings, Lazarus, Martha and Mary, and especially Mary who takes this opportunity to anoint the Lord with this very expensive ointment. You'll remember it cost about a year's wages, imported from the Himalayas, and for its authenticity to be assured, the flask had to be broken. There was a special seal in order to open it. And she opens it, and of course she pours it upon the Lord. Now we looked at this incident last Sabbath night through the eyes of the disciples, how they saw it, how they understood it, or not, how they evaluated it. We especially saw it through the eyes of Judas, because you'll remember it was Judas' assessment of it that was articulated in the room. I'm sure nobody spoke while the action was being done, but Judas was the first to speak, And his point of view, of course, was an unspiritual view. It was a very carnal and worldly view, but it soon took hold. And the rest of the Lord's people were affected by it. And let's never forget that, that it is quite easy sometimes for the Lord's people to be swayed in their thinking and in their judgment of something by someone who is not really the Lord's. We should always... Remember that. And amazingly, there was no voice raised in defense of what Mary had done. Although Jesus goes on to say that what she has done is so wonderful that it will always be spoken of wherever the gospel is preached, at the time no one spoke up in her defense to honor her. But of course, the Lord is the advocate of his own people and he is their defender and he is moved to speak. on Mary's behalf. And so I want tonight with you, with reverence, to look at this action through the Lord's eyes as he sees it. And of course, as we see it through the Lord's eyes, we end up seeing it through Mary's eyes too, because it is the Lord who tells us what was in Mary's heart. It's the Lord who tells us what Mary was actually doing, which is far deeper than we would understand on the face of it, and what she means as she does it. And may we be blessed in considering these things. Now, I'm conscious that many of you will have heard, without exaggeration, perhaps a hundred sermons on this, and it's quite possible that we sometimes come to this kind of thing and think, well, I know this anyway. But I'm sure if we come to it openly and honestly... Desiring the Lord to speak to us. He will first either bless to us what we have already heard before. Or he may indeed bring before us something that we have not heard before. So let's turn to it and see it through the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we do see it in his eyes. And when we begin to see the heart of Mary and what she really meant when she did this. We'll begin to understand what the Lord meant when he said that what she did would always be spoken of as long as this gospel would be preached. And, of course, tonight is a fulfilment of that. I mean, here we are, thousands of miles away and thousands of years away from where and when this incident happened. But yet, um, as we open up together this passage of Scripture, I hope it will be true that the alabaster box in some way is broken open again and the fragrance of what Mary did will be released, even in this room, amongst ourselves. Now one thing we need to remember at the outset in interpreting this is something that I did mention last Lord's Day evening and that's that this act itself was not spontaneous on Mary's part. It was actually planned. It was planned. She kept the ointment. Now I'm conscious indeed that the Lord actually says that she kept the ointment for the day of his burial conscious that that's true, so that may indicate to you, well, that this seems to be spontaneous. She was keeping it for a certain event, but lo and behold, she decides to do this right now. It's not quite as simple as that. We certainly don't know why she got the flask originally. Nobody knows when or how she got it. Was it a a gift? Um, There are indications that the family was not poor, but this is a really expensive thing to have. But why ever she got it didn't turn out to be the reason for keeping it. She could have used it on another occasion or several other occasions, but as she came to know the Lord, as she was touched by his word, as the power of the gospel got a hold of her heart, she decided that she would use this ointment for a particular purpose. Whatever she got it for, she would use it his funeral, because she certainly believed that he was going to die. Now, other people, of course, didn't believe that he was going to die. They believed, as the, as we read in the Bible, that the Messiah was here to stay, and that he would live forever. So, whatever the language about dying or suffering, it must have been figurative language. It must have been symbolic language of some time, that it, of some kind. There is no way that the Lord himself would actually die or pass away. But Mary came to believe that the Lord would die and that he would be buried, and she was keeping this most expensive ointment to honour Christ with at the point of his death. Now, it was the done thing amongst the Jewish people, like many other people in that part of the world, to embalm bodies, just to preserve them, as long as they could be preserved. Of course, people like the Egyptians specialised in that, and the bodies that they embalmed could last for thousands, and have lasted for thousands of years. The Jews did the same, but not with a view to to keeping them quite like that. But they did believe in the resurrection, they did believe in honouring the body. And we should always remember as Christians that the most honouring way to deal with the body of the dead is not by burning them, but by burying them. That's our biblical example and it's certainly the Lord's own example. But usually about one kilo of spice would be enough. Sorry, uh, half, less than half a kilo. One pound of spice would be enough for an ordinary burial. The great rabbi, the great Jewish teacher Gamaliel, um, at whose feet you remember Paul uh, learned how to be a Pharisee. He, he grew up with the best available education not just in the matters of the biblical law, but wider than that too, he, he learned at the feet of Gamelion. Now, when Gamelion died, it was reckoned that he was buried with all the spices of a king because there were actually 20 kilos of spice used in his burial. There were 45 kilos used for the burial of the Lord, which is a remarkable thing because he, he died as a thief would die. He died as a murderer would die. He died on the cross, rejected and reprobated by everybody. But astonishingly, as Isaiah had foretold 800 years before he was with the rich in his death. He would be numbered amongst the transgressors, but would be with the rich in his death. It's amazing, isn't it, how accurate the Bible is in its prophecies and predictions. 800 years before, there is a foretelling that the Lord would be surrounded at the point of his death with extra burial, with extraordinary wealth. (coughs) Forty-five kilos. That came from two wealthy men, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. They had been secret disciples up to that point. Uh, Many of you might have been secret disciples. In fact, one or two of you might be secret disciples, for all I know. All I do know is that if you are secret disciples, you won't stay that way. Because just as he brought Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea out into the open, he has his ways of bringing all of us into the open, the swivel. He certainly knows how to do that. Well, they lavished their wealth on buying 45 kilos of precious embalming spices to embalm the Lord's body. Now, that was Mary's intention too. She was keeping this precious ointment worth thousands of pounds, a rare ointment of spikenard, because she had come to believe that her Lord was actually going to die and that he was going to be buried. Now we may well wonder what she thought about that. How did she reconcile that with her faith? How did she reconcile that with the fact that she believed that this Christ was the Messiah? Well let's just go on but in any case that's why she kept it. But you remember that this feast is not held in Martha, Mary and Lassa's house. It is held in the house of Simon the leper. Now, one of the reasons I believe we're told that is because it reminds us that she didn't just decide to get the perfume and do this. She came to the feast with the intention of doing it. Now, she had the example of someone who had done something like that before. The woman who was a sinner. In other words, she lived a life of prostitution. That's how the word is meant. You remember how she came and used this lavish perfume on the Lord. She poured it out on the Lord, she loosened her hair and she wiped his feet. And also, of course, with her tears. With her tears. Now Mary had that example. She knew someone else had esteemed the Lord so much that she was willing to do that. To humble herself and to give the best That she had for her saviour and so she thought that she would do exactly the same thing and um, although her original intention was to do it at the burial she wants to do it now before he dies and before he is buried and so this is a planned anointing planned anointing one in which she makes a statement. And it doesn't just reveal her great love for the Lord, but it shows a profound spiritual understanding of who the Lord is and also what the Lord must actually do. What he must undergo and experience and what he will do for her. And what he will do for every single person in that room, even if they don't understand, even if they're annoyed at what she's going to do, she knows what he's going to do for her and for them. Well, of course, with the exception of Judas Iscariot. There was no prayer for him. There was no intercession for him. So let's take a closer look at what she does very briefly and then a little more fully at why she does it. Now, what she does, I don't need... To linger on, Uh, while Christ is at the table, and once he begins to preach or to (coughs) teach the word of God, she comes to where he sits, she breaks the seal, and she pours the ointment first of all on his head, and then we're told in another gospel that she pours it on his feet. These are two deliberate anointings, two separate. Anointings, there is an application to the head and to the feet. And you'll remember from last week that the Lord Himself explains that. He doesn't take it as a, an anointing of His head and of His feet as such, but as an anointing of His body. And He makes that very plain that she has anointed His body in connection with His burial. Now, it's two days. Uh, before the Passover. I don't know if you've ever thought of of this. I I find it myself quite a fascinating thing that from this point until the Lord's ascension into heaven there is an overwhelming uh, beautiful fragrance wherever he goes. For a space of 43 days he has an overwhelmingly beautiful smell wherever he goes 45 kilos uh, was a lot to be buried in. this amount of spike spikenard poured from head to foot I mean the smell is everywhere and the Lord carries that smell into his trial he carries the smell to the cross and once he is laid on the grave there are 45 further kilos when he rises there is a fragrance a fragrance in his death Fragrance in his burial, a fragrance in his resurrection, fragrance in his ascension. Isn't it wonderful how God orders these things to be so? I mean, he, he's going through experiences that make him ugly and someone to be rejected and to be despised in the sight of people. But God is actually sending a message even to, even to the nose that he is fragrant in his sight. And of course, if we understand who he is and what he's done, he's fragrant to us as well. In any case, she anoints his whole body. Now, what then does she mean by this? Well, I would say to you, friends, that she's wanting to show two things. She's wanting to show who he is and what he does. And, in fact, more specifically, she wants to show that she values the Lord's work. And she wants to show that she loves the Lord's person. That will be true of you tonight as a Christian. It's what I pray will be true of you. Yet if you're not a Christian, I pray that you will value the Lord's work and that you will love the Lord's person. And of course, you will only really love the Lord's person if you learn to value his work but let's take that work first she values the Lord's work now she can only value the Lord's work if she understands it of course none of us can understand the Lord's um, works to the extent that they can be understood or even to the extent that we will understand them in heaven, of course not but nonetheless we need to understand something before we can properly value it and what Mary does here is to show that she understands what Christ is going to do. Now, before I go into this a bit, I I want to clear one thing out of the way. There's a a very common view here, um, in connection with this incident, that Mary doesn't really know that what she's doing is connected with Christ's death and burial that she's only actually showing her love for him by pouring out the ointment. but that Christ interp- it, interprets it as something that is fitting with a view to his burial in other words that kind of understanding and it is a really common understanding if you, if you pick up a, a commentary you, you might find that, that that's the way they take it now I'm not, I'm not condemning these people I understand why they go down that road but What they say essentially is this, Mary didn't understand that he was going to die. Mary didn't understand that he was going to be buried. She simply loved him and showed him that love. But Jesus said that what she does is fitting because it's related to my death. It's related to my burial. She doesn't know, but I give it that interpretation. Now, the the kindest thing I can say about that really is that it's very bland. And it's um, very disappointing. One thing it does is it empties Christ's words of their real meaning. I mean, when you, when you hear Christ say, she has done this without you, then the impression you get from that is that Mary knows what she's doing. That Mary understands the purpose of her anointing. So, you're kind of evacuating the words of Christ of their real force and meaning if you say, Well, I'm giving it that interpretation, even though she doesn't have a clue. That's not how it sounds. She has done this with a view. Again, it empties Mary's act of its real spiritual significance. Now, I'm not saying that an act done in love and to demonstrate love is, is something that's very small or something that you can just push to the side. Far from it. I mean, something done in love for the Lord and something expressing real love for the Lord is to be admired. There's too little of it. Too little of it. But if that's all it is, we're taking away her understanding in connection with what she is actually doing. Why not just be content to do this feat? Why not just be content to pour it on his head? Why anoint his body? Why the vigorous defence on the part of the Lord in connection with what she has done and why she has done it? So, friends, I don't think we should go down that road at all. Now, by the way, the reason people say that, the reason people take that interpretation is because they say, well, how could Mary understand this anyway? The apostles didn't understand that he was going to die the apostles themselves didn't understand that she was going to be buried. I mean, how on earth do you expect Mary Near Bethany, who wasn't so often in the company of Jesus, to understand these things? Well, friends, is that really fair? Is it just people in office who understand things? Do we really think that only the apostles understood certain things and other people did not? We're familiar enough with Church leaders understanding very little, and the people understanding far more. We're familiar enough with that. It's not an unusual thing. Even in the Lord's ministry, was it not the leaders of the church who despised him? And was it not the common people who heard him gladly? Was it not the common people who understood what he was saying? And, and those who were supposedly more enlightened or more educated or whatever, they just didn't. They just didn't understand it at all. Is that not what David was saying in the psalm that we sang? In understanding, well, he says, Then all my teachers now I have more understanding far. That's, that's metrical. Let me just take it out of the metrical and make prose out of it. Just make it easier to understand. He says, I understand far more now, he says, than my teachers because your testimonies, he says, are my meditation. He repeats the thought. I excel those that are ancients in understanding, because I endeavored to keep all thy commandments. Now, um, notice he doesn't, say, he doesn't say that I understand more than the teachers, because... I've seen more. He doesn't say, I understand, in understanding I excel the ancients because I've had far more taught to me in my dispensation than they had in theirs. That's not what he says at all. What he says is that his understanding exceeds theirs because he says, I've actually kept the law. I've actually walked close to you and I've stayed in your fellowship. And one thing you'll discover as a Christian yourself is that the more obedient you are, the more you understand from God's word. And the less obedient you are, the less you understand of the word of God. You'll discover that. You start drifting away from the Lord and the Bible begins mysteriously to close. You start coming back to the Lord and lo and behold the Bible starts to open again. Why? Because God draws near to the humble and he resists the proud. The arguments that we saw in the morning about who was greater and who would sit at the right hand of the Lord and who would sit at the left, would it be James or would it be John? You won't hear any of that from Mary of Bethany's mouth. Every single time you find her in the Gospels, you'll notice she's at the feet of the Lord. And she's listening at the feet of the Lord and she's processing at the Lord's feet. And that's why she is able to perceive and to see things that the disciples who were in so much proximity to the Lord just didn't see or understand at all. That's the way it goes. Who understands most in here tonight? The person who's closest to the Lord. That's the way it goes. What the Lord honors is not the magnitude of anyone's intelligence, but the piety of their life and conduct. I understand more than the ancients, he says, because I keep your law. Now let that be an encouragement to you and indeed to me. We'll always find people more clever and more able than ourselves but the Lord will give a spiritual understanding of his word the closer we are to him. That's an encouragement to every single one of us. It's humility that the Lord honors. He will lead the humble in his way. He always lead the humble in his way. So why shouldn't Mary of Bethany understand what they did? And after all, I mean, to, to come at the question in another way, I mean, sometimes, you know, you read a passage in the Bible yourself. Let's say, for example, where the Lord speaks about uh, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of the chief priests and the elders, must suffer many things at their hand and be put to death And be raised again the third day. And you say to yourself. Well well, how did they not understand that? Good question. In fact we read immediately after a saying like that. The disciples understood not. What he was saying. Now you say. And I say. Well how not? Well fair enough. But if you say how not. Why then can you deny Mary of Bethany. That she did understand. Yes she did. She had a more teachable spirit. Uh, praise God, the apostles came to a place themselves where they had a more teachable spirit, but Mary got there first. There's no doubt about that. She was humble in her heart. So what is she saying? Well, first of all, she's saying, "I know that you are going to die, and that you are going to be buried, and that you are going to rise again." <clears throat> no none of us can deny that Christ's teaching contained these things, especially as the time drew near. In fact, even on the following day when um, they went to the temple, there was a group of Greeks there, and you can read this in John chapter 12, and the Greeks um, they wanted to see Jesus. In fact, they approached one of Jesus' disciples who was of Hellenistic origin himself, a kind of Greek-speaking background. They came to Andrew, and they said, Sir, what was it, Philip? I can't remember which one they did, but, but they're both Hellenistic. But they said, Sir, we would see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. And Jesus responds to them in a very unusual way. He says, um, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies it will not produce fruit and there he's speaking about himself that he must fall into the ground through death and burial but once he does so he will become fruitful Now I'm quite sure that that was partly to prepare these Greeks for what was going to happen in in a day or two's time. In other words, when they saw him hanging there and when they saw him buried, they would not despair. The, The Spirit would bring the word back to them and say, did he not say that a grain of wheat needs to fall into the ground and die in order to be fruitful? But you can't deny that his language Maybe parabolic there, but it's clear enough. This constant repetition <coughs> of the idea of death and resurrection. And sometimes, like I said to you, it was explicit. It wasn't parabolic. I mean, what's more explicit than saying that I must go into the hands of the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, and I must suffer many things at the hand, and I must be put to death, and on the third day I will rise again. What can be more explicit than that. I can't help thinking, like I said, that many of the people heard it thought, well he must still be speaking in parables. There's going to be a suffering of some kind. There's going to be something in his life that's analogous to a death. Some kind of experience that we don't really understand But the Messiah's not going to die. It's different for Mary. And why is it different from Mary? Because Mary really listens to the word of God. Mary studies the Word of God. She had a good example in the other Mary, who I'm sure she knew well. That's Jesus, Mary, the mother of Jesus. You remember that whenever anything was said about her when she was pregnant and when the Lord was growing up, whenever anything was said about him, we're told that she kept these things in her heart. She was a meditative person. Friends, that's what we all need, to be in connection with the Bible. Our reading of it is perfunctory; it's sometimes superficial. We, we don't, as Pink used to say, we don't chew the cud, we, we swallow too quickly. You've got to learn to chew it, you've got to learn to meditate on it, you've got to learn to ask it questions, you've got to ask the Lord to show you what the word means and to apply the word to yourself. That's even how you've got to come to church. You've got to come to church in that kind of way that doesn't just expect to hear something, but to feel something to be convicted of something, to be challenged about something, to be urged in some kind of connection, to be comforted, maybe. But that's what you want. And for that to be so, you've got to think, ponder. And that's what this Mary did as well. Especially just a few days before this, when the Lord had visited her own house, in the midst of a bereavement, when she was mourning her younger brother's death, And, of course, the Lord had said to her sister, and by extension to her, do you believe that your brother will rise again? Yes, Martha said. I believe, come the resurrection, that he will rise again. I am the resurrection, he says. What do you think he meant by life? Not even I authorize the resurrection. Not even I initiate the resurrection. But I am the resurrection. I am life. Life. in me though he were dead yet shall he live and if a man lives and believes in me he shall never die at all do you believe that do you believe that that was a big question to ask martha's big question to ask yourself do you, do you believe in your i'm not just asking you whether you believe in life after death do you believe in this life this kind of life during this life and do you believe in this kind of life beyond this life Do you believe in the kind of life that Christ gives you by indwelling you, by regenerating you, making you a new creature in His own likeness, making you a Christian? New life, new hope, new aspirations. Hmm? A new way to live, a new life and a new lifestyle. Eternal life, life that shall never end. Do you believe this? Do you not think Martha thought about that? you don't think she watched as the Lord said Lazarus come forth and her brother bound hand and foot just walked out of the tomb in which he had been placed do you not think she thought about that do you not think she said to herself well well, how can this man uh, who enables others to live, how can he not live forever himself I mean if he has the power of life and death then surely he must live But when he tells us that he must die and rise again, there's an interruption to that kind of life. There's a mysterious interruption, but it's genuinely meaningful. This man who is life and called life, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is the beginning and the end, will have an interruption to his life. For a time he'll be in the ground and he will resume the life with the same power by which he called my brother out of the tomb for her it wasn't just a miracle it was a lesson regarding who this man actually was and in connection with that in connection with believing that he dies and rises again she also believes that he dies and rises somehow as a substitute for herself and as a substitute for her friends in the house too because why else die why else be buried if you are alive, unless you're dying for somebody else, and unless you've been buried for somebody else. Oh yes, Mary knows that, she, that the death that he speaks about is real, because it's for her. He's going to be buried for her sake. He's going to suffer the torments and the agonies that he's going to endure for her sake, for Martha's sake too, for Lazarus' sake, and for everybody else in the room, oh, except Judas. Except Judas. So there's no need to keep this perfume for his burial. The only meaning perfume would have in connection with his burial is if he was never going to rise again. Yes, let's keep the body fresh. Let's keep it smelling good. Like like we all do, like the Egyptians did. We want to dress up a body because we're not going to see it anymore. She said, I'm not doing that. that that's how I kept this at first when I understood he was going to be buried. But But my understanding has grown. My understanding has grown. He's dying for me. He's going to be buried for me. And he's going to rise again for me. So I'm not anointing his body. His body will stay fresh. His body will not decay. His body will not see corruption. His body will remain whole and beautiful. And it will rise again on the third day. So, why anoint him? Why anoint him? Well, She anoints him because she loves the Lord's person. And all all the love that she would show that body normally at burial, she wants to show it right now while he's alive. Let me say to you that you are precious to me in life and you are precious to me in death. And because I won't have the opportunity to say that to you when you're buried, I'll say it now. And I'll say it for everyone's sake just now. Follow my Lord to death and follow him to burial and smell him as you do so because it's for my sake and for your sake. What he suffers is fragrant to God and fragrant to me. His burial, fragrant to God, fragrant to Mm -hmm. me. That, friends, is why, like I said, I think, last Sabbath, that is why Mary is is conspicuous by her absence amongst that group of women that go to anoint the Lord. It's a beautiful thing that we're going to do on that first uh, Christian Sabbath morning. I mean, what a day that was. What a day. I love the Lord's Day. I'm sure you do every time it comes round because uh, because it reminds me of these things. Every time, Sunday some people call it, every time the Sabbath comes or every time the Lord's Day comes it reminds me of a lot of things. It reminds you of a lot of things too but The very first Christian Sabbath that broke, with the first streaks of dawn, you have these women, and they had been waiting for their own Sabbath to pass, so that they could go out first thing in the morning to anoint the Saviour, an act of love, an act of honour. But without being unkind, there's ignorance in it. There's a a lack of understanding in it. I don't, mean that. I don't mean that. I don't even want that to sound unkind because the act is so full of love. So full of love. But notice who's not there. And it's unthinkable that she's not there except that she's done the anointing already. She's not expecting him to stay in that tomb. She's heard. She's understood. She's spiritually processed it. She fully expects what's going to happen. And this anointing, therefore, she, she still wants to lavish him with this because she understands and because she loves him too. And once you understand who the Lord is, you can't but love him. The, I can't remember who said this of whom. I honestly can't, I sometimes wish I'd take notes of some of these things. But somebody once said of somebody else that to know him is to love him. I think the person said, well, I'm not sure what kind of person that is. You know, I, I don't know them very well. And the person's response was, well, to know that person is to love him. In other words, the more you know that person, the more you love that person. Well, that is supremely true of God. That is supremely true of the Lord Jesus Christ. To know him is to love him. And any failure that you have in connection with loving God tonight is... Because cause you don't know. If you can't say that I love the Lord Jesus Christ with all my heart and soul and mind and strength, it's because you have not appreciated what he has done for sinners. Something that he offers freely to you even now as the gospel is preached. And so when Mary is anointing her saviour it's not just with an understanding of what he's done, but an appreciation of what he's done. I love the Lord because my voice and prayers he did hear. She knows what it is for the cords of death herself to be tightening around her and the pains of hell and finding grief and trouble. So let let me anoint the one who's going to die and be buried to deliver me from that. And once we discover that, no offering is too great. Such a sacrifice, as the hymn writer said, deserves... Uh, my soul, my life, my all—it's a great thing to give an alabaster box of fragrance. But I'm sure we have something that we can give to. In in general terms, anyway, it's best to honour people while they're alive, than when they die. I mean, sometimes people will lavishly honour people when they died, and they didn't bother with them really while they were alive. Well, she certainly doesn't fall into that trap. She does what she can and uh, I can't help but think that that was a great encouragement to the Lord himself he's in a room full of people who don't appreciate a spiritual thing when it's done but here's someone who does and apparently little things like that to us meant a lot for the Lord as the shadow of Calvary was falling on let me just say more or less in conclusion that Christ goes on to say a little more. She says concerning Mary that she has done a good work. She's done a good work. That's important for all of us. When when we do something in love, in zeal, with understanding, God calls it good. Now I look at my own efforts for the Lord and I don't really call them very good. You look at yours too, and you don't call them very good. And the reason for that is very simple. We're so conscious of sin. But with the Lord, it's as though he doesn't see that at all. No crookedness in Israel, no perverseness in Jacob. He takes what he knows to be the motive in your heart. He doesn't see any other mixed motives that might have a place in there. He just sees the good motive at the core, and it sanctifies the whole thing. That is a good work, he says, that you have done for me there. And the Lord is pleased with what you do for his name's sake, even if you think it not much. But Mary would probably have said that what she did wasn't much. The Lord thought it was much. He also says about her that she did what she could. Isn't that an interesting expression? She has done what she could. He doesn't rebuke her for not doing what she couldn't do. He just commends her for doing what she could. Sometimes you can't do what another person does. And you may think that what you do, therefore, isn't of much value. But the Lord doesn't ask you to do what others do. And he certainly doesn't ask you to do what you can't do. He's happy for you to do what you can do. Um, It is, of course, interesting to note that she did what she could. Sometimes we think of doing good and we leave it at the thought. How often we do that? You know, one of the areas where we do that a lot, and I have to say, mea culpa in connection with this, um, is think of seeing somebody and not doing it, not following it through. If you feel that the Lord has laid on your heart, you know, and you usually tell that by the thing coming back to you and maybe being a bit strong followed through. I mean Mary could have thought of this and simply not done it. But not only did she do what she could, but she did what she could. Last of all, the Lord says, don't trouble her but leave her alone. Now there's something in that that I like really and I'm sure you do too. It's, It's the closeness of the Lord with his people, especially when they're under attack. Uh, when when there's something false maybe circulating about them or uh, people are inclined to believe the worst about them or something like that the Lord is standing there saying leave them alone I know them and I understand the advocate, the friend and the friend that sticks closer than a brother well the fragrance filled the room and as I said at the beginning every time this is preached on to some degree or another that Fragrance fills the room again and it's a fragrance that's full not just of love but gratitude and deep understanding and Jesus of course says that it's a memorial to her that's interesting too if Mary was told that you're going to be remembered as long as the world well she was told that but had she been told this earlier I'm sure she'd be saying me I've remembered to the end of the world and preached unto the end of the world well, Mary's long since gone to glory. Uh, her works, her. the fragrance of what she has done remains behind. And let's try ourselves in our own quiet way to serve the Lord in the same way. Let us pray. O <coughs> oh Lord, we are thankful indeed that uh, you attach importance and significance to the works of your people. And however poor their love may be, yet you esteem it and you value it. And help us to do the same. It is a precious thing, even for a tear to be poured out, in honour of the Lord and in gratitude to What shall I render to the Lord for all his goodness to me? And may we ask that question far more of, and may we too do what we can. In Christ's name, Amen. <coughs> we'll sing in conclusion in Psalm 89. Psalm 89 and at verse 15. O greatly blessed the people are, the joyful sound that knoweth, that's the sound of God coming in mercy and grace, and in brightness of thy face, O Lord, they ever on shall go. They in thy name shall all the day rejoice exceedingly, and in thy righteousness shall they exalted be on high, because the glory of their strength doth only stand in thee. And in thy favour, shallow horn and power exalted be? Fifteen to seventeen men stand. You see it. Oh, blessed!